Hello and welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Peter Kenny. And I'm Robin Houghton. Welcome to the new year. We can still say that. Is it still the new year? Just about. We're a bit <laughs> late, aren't we? Well, yeah, we've both had things to deal with, but we're back. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to the lovely Janet Sutherland. And we're looking back on her, well, shall we say, quietly fabulous body of work. Robin, have you made any writerly resolutions this year? <laughs> writerly resolutions. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Probably the same ones as last year. Get my collection together, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's probably as far as it goes. How about, how about you? I want to be optimistic. Find that zone again where I feel just that it's pouring out of me. It's nice to be in that zone where, as you say, something pops up and you think, right, make a note of that, or you start editing and then really mm. get so stuck into it. You know, things are things are moving, and and that is always a pleasure, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah, that idea of uh, polishing things so that you know are already good that that's lovely. But I, I, my tendency is always to try and over polish and then. I end up with a heap of broken things at the end. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, like sort of rubbing too hard at, at the wood and then you find it was just a veneer and it's all come off and there's a load of old MDF <laughs> underneath. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not just a good one, is it? Learning to step back at exactly the right moment. I think that's that, that's my challenge for this year. Hmm. Okay. Without further ado, let's listen to Peter's interview with Janet Sutherland. Janet Sutherland has four collections from Shearsman Books, Burning the Heartwood, published in 2006, Hangman's Acre, published in 2009, Bone Monkey from 2014, and Home Farm from 2019. A new collection is being finalised, and we'll talk about that later. So, Janet, welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm delighted to have you on board. What are your hopes and dreams for 2022? I suppose I'm hoping for a a freer year that's not so constrained by COVID, but I don't know how that will go. <laughs> yeah. Have you continued kind of unscathed and just as normal? Uh, sitting down to write has become more of a sort of meditative thing for me. So I, and because I've been editing the, the new work and I really like editing, that's sort <laughs> it's of been happy days. <laughs> happy days. Yes. Lots to do. <laughs> I think I think there may be a surprising <clears throat> amount of writers who've secretly really enjoyed all this business. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I I was ill in 2020, so being better has been lovely. So I've got more energy to do things again. Oh, that's great news! So what we're going to do today is have a kind of look back at your four collections, um, and then sort of maybe look to the future. But um, I'd like to start with your first collection, Burning the Heartwood. Um, and I'm asking you to read two poems from it, which kind of see, seem to me to be sort of cornerstones of your work. If I could ask you to read the first poem in the collection. Sure. So this is called Hearth. The hiss of flame before earth. Sometimes the ear listens without thought. Unbuttoning the heart, we hear rain from a wet coat, leaping and cracking on stone. What I love about that is that, you know, just as a kind of the first poem, if you read them chronologically, that you encounter, 
It's like you're being welcomed in from the cold. You're shaking <laughs> off the rain and you enter a space, you know, flickering with firelight in which you will hear marvellous things. And I think it's just, so, it's almost, there's a timelessness about that. It's kind of like some Anglo-Saxon thing, you know, coming in wow. <laughs> safe at last and ready to hear stories. I wrote that in um, in the early 80s. So it's quite an old poem yeah. um, because this collection is made up of poems that I wrote when I first started writing and then I had a big writing gap. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I started again. So this was written in like, well, it was first published in 85 in a small magazine called Sow's Ear. Oh, which, I remember uh, that. Yeah. You remember that? Wow. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so what you were talking about, Hearth and being welcomed in, um, I remember when I wrote this that I was interested in all the words that you can find inside the word hearth as complete words. So you get heart, ear, earth, here. And so I wanted to put all of those words. I mean, the fact that hearth contains the word heart in its entirety, I think is lovely. And so I wanted to put those words into the poem Mm. and sort of let them reflect on that feeling of going into a a space, taking off your coat and letting the water sputter about on the stone. Another poem from that collection is Memory. Memory. The little adders fall out of the pitchforked hay into the stooks floating the swollen river. The past, like folded washing, dislocates. The last bus missed, the fifteen-mile walk home, a cart-horse ridden standing to a quiet stall. Speaking in fragments still, the lost and agile words could be a poem. An adder falling punctuates the piece. Yeah, I love that. And and memory is such a a current in in your work. There's another poem in that collection about being hit um, by a fa- falling shoe in Vienna, and it was oh a yes, rather ghastly business. Someone but, else's memory, not mine. Yeah, but yeah. it was making me think of um, Jacques Prévert. You know, th- these little screenwriterly moments of, you know, almost filmic things, and that sort of mm-hmm. adder falling out of the hay, um, and you know, being hit by a falling shoe. You have that uh, ability to just capture those kind of just tiny little scenes that. Uh, suggest whole stories in memory these are my father's memories of farming yeah and he told me the the story about the little adders falling out of the stooks uh, falling out of the uh, the pitchforked hay yeah. and um he'd been doing it with a friend of a farmer friend of his who was absolutely horrified <laughs> and went home and wouldn't uh, do any more work because uh, he was frightened and all of the other memories are memories of his when he was a very young man, first doing farming. Yeah. He used to go home from ploughing or whatever he was doing with the horse, standing on its back, you know, like a... Wow. Yeah. Like a circus performer or something. <laughs> like a circus performer. So I just, I wanted to take all of those little memories and sort of put them together and reflect on how they make something else. Yeah. So that that word stuck as well, it's like a, what is it, like a... I had to look it up, like sheaves of grain. 
Is that? Yes. Yeah. They're, they're propped up in the field. Ah, yeah. Into like a, a shape that's supposed to keep them dry. But in this case, they'd floated off down a river. Yeah. And he had a memory of seeing that. It would have been somewhere up north in uh, County Durham, I think. I'm conscious that there's sort of many paths we could take through your work. You've got a deep engagement with history and that, you know, the, some of your poems are politically inflected, good poems about female genital mutilation and love and loss. What was the subject that you started writing about initially? I think the first proper poem in my early 20s, I wrote something about the island of Circe um, appearing in a volcanic eruption. That felt like a proper poem. A poem written about a new island forming, <laughs> bubbling out of the sea. Yeah, exactly. That's the eruption of the talent that is Janet Sutherland. <laughs> first poem. <laughs> but I don't know, really. I mean, I think I've always written, and um, mostly my early stuff was about landscape. And then I think I was fascinated by memory. Yeah. And yes, there are some poems that I think have to be written because the things that happen, like the one about FGM yeah. and some other ones about Iraq. So how deliberate is that process? Do you think, do poems just come to you and you think that belongs in that pigeonhole? Or, or, or do you, you know, set, set about to write a poem about Subject X? The last two books I've written have been sort of book-length projects, mm. Bone Monkey and Home Farm. So I suppose I had a an overall subject area for each of them and then the poems sort of gather together and that's true of the book that I'm writing at the moment as well I do quite a lot of research um which can uh, sometimes be quite aimless but then you 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 come across something that just sort of creates a sort of itch Mm. and it might not even be in the area that you want to write about but but somehow what you've researched has a connection yeah there's sort of more formal research that you might do on the computer, sort of looking at all sorts of odd things. Then there's the sort of ongoing going out for a walk type of research yeah. where you just look at things. <laughs> so <laughs> Let's move on to your next collection, Hangman's Acre. And mm-hmm. I see this as kind of a springboard book, really, because there's, there's the seeds of the, your third and fourth book in this one. Yeah. And there's a poem that's just called Nearer, which is the last poem in the book, which I'm going to ask you to read. Nearer. Rain is falling under sodium lights. The municipal toilet roof is bathed in gold. Up Station Street the tarmac shines, and little rivers writhe and coil along the roadside gutters. It's late. The traffic light in broken pieces scatters across the deserted lane, in amber, red, red and amber, green. In all the houses, darkness slowly deepens. In this town, on a night like this, my heart glitters. Each footfall takes me nearer to your bed and to the dark where I will lie with you this little time. I thought it could not be like this, but I was wrong. Walking on light and water, coming home. That's such a gorgeous poem. You've got this understatement and a lovely way of expressing love. And um, 
that sort of walking that tightrope between powerful feelings and, and being quite restrained just seems to be something you you just do so brilliantly. I never get that sense that you're going, you know, you're, there's an emotional gushing, but your restraint actually is so much more moving, I think. That sudden sense of the splendidness of just everyday things because mm. of that other person that exists in the world. Is it a conscious thing you do, self-restraint, or is it just an expression of who you are, really? I think it might be an expression of who I am. Um, I like restraint. And um, I, I'm not sure if I can explain, really. I mean, that that poem was written from actually walking home. Mm. You know, I, I'd come from, I think I'd come from a, a, some poetry event in London or something. I got off the train and, and walked up the street and it was, it was raining and the light was shining very beautifully on the top of the toilet roof. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was, you know, Station Street is quite a steep street. It was just falling into the gutters and it was colored by the traffic lights at the top of the street. Mm. And then I got that sort of um, sense of, you know, how lovely it is to have someone at yeah. home. And, um, you know, I lived on my own. Um, for quite a number of years. So I've, you know, you know, loneliness. Mm. And so it's lovely to have that other experience of, of love. Yeah. You mentioned something earlier that I wanted to pick up on about the idea of having a kind of hiatus in your writing that you, yeah. Can you say more about that? I sort of, I was, I was living, um, on my own in in London in a bedsit and then in a little flat and I'd just finished doing a masters in um in American poetry and I wrote for a few years after that and then that gradually tailed off and I started doing other things mm. other writing um, or just other activities uh no other activities I started um I started going to a woodwork class and then I started teaching woodwork um, oh, wow. That's great. To adult, adult education would work. Mm. Um, I was doing stuff to do with Clause 28, you know, getting involved, um, politically a yeah. bit. And also, well, I'd had, you know, some things published, but I couldn't get, um, anything other than a pamphlet published mm. at that time, which I think now is a good thing. So it seemed to be hard and it just sort of gradually tailed off. Uh, then we had a child and we moved into a house and then we moved to Lewis and then living close to the country again. I think that might have had something to do with it. Yeah. I think it's, um, I think, you know, as you get older, you work out more maybe what you want to say as well mm. or how you want to say it. I'd like to talk a bit about your very intriguing third collection, Bone Monkey. This was the first one mm. I, I read as a reader. Not all of the poems, but many of them are featuring this kind of character, the Bone Monkey, which is, mm. um, to me, it's a kind of Loki-like, mischievous, god-like thing. Mm. C can you say more about where that this wonderful creation came from? I can tell you where it started. Um, it started with... Uh, my partner's mother had very severe dementia and we were we were walking along at Hengisbury Head um, near where her care home was and she started talking about the monkey on her shoulder by which she meant the sort of depression that was sort of surrounding her that came with the dementia. Um, so that's where the first three poems 
came from. I think there's there's one that that talks about that event, and they were in Hangman's Acre. Yes. Those first three poems, and then I started thinking about that character more, and um, so he turned into this a trickster character who sort of encompasses everything from um, a sort of godlike creature who was there at the beginning of the world to to a murderer, um, someone who wants to die but can't, a carer, mm. you know, someone who's caring for an, a relative, and there's there's all of those feelings in there that that one might feel if you are caring for someone who's got that kind of dementia. So it's quite complicated, yeah. really. I think I think there's something quite freeing about you know sort of like this kind of Jekyll and Hyde type thought that or you know your shadow self or something just giving inviting that into the center stage. People have written about monsters and monstrous things since people began writing. There's a, a real energy about this collection that I, I, I really adore. Maybe we should hear something from it. Um, yeah. Let's start with In the Beginning. Sure. In the Beginning. Bone Monkey had grown old. The time had come to shuck his skin to slither out plump as a suckling pig, to slip home, leaping like a lord. The air was full of bright birds fluttering, rose-madder red and cerulean blue, and all the vines grew strong. The bees were drunk with nectar as they sang. He took his stick and limped out to the stream, where the low branches made a secret place to hide, and slit the shriveled leather at his throat. He put his hands inside, spread them apart, and climbed outside himself. New tender flesh smelt of ambrosia and was sweetly curved. He cast his old husk on the waters, watched it sink and fill and ride over the shining pebbles to the shore. It lay before him like a lens, the gloved hands clapping to the music of the waves as minnows whipped between them in a shoal. He fished it out and dressed himself again. That's great. It's like a creation myth, isn't it? But <laughs> Yeah, and funnily enough, um, when I was sort of doing some research, I was reading something called Twelve Lectures on the Fear and Worship of the Dead, by Sir James George Fraser, which was published in 1913. And he tells a story told by the natives of the Banks Islands and the New Hebrides. Yeah. I can read it to you if you like. The natives of the Banks Islands and the New Hebrides believed that there was a time in the beginning of things when men never died but cast their skins like snakes and crabs and so renewed their youth but the unhappy change to mortality came about at last, as it so often does in these stories, through an old woman. Having grown old, this dame went to a stream to change her skin, and change it she did, for she stripped off her wizened old hide, cast it upon the waters, and watched it floating downstream till it caught on a stick. Then she went home, a buxom young woman. But the child who she had left at home did not know her, 
and set up such a prodigious squalling that to quiet it the woman went straight back to the river, fished out her cast-off old skin and put it on again. From that day to this people have ceased to cast their skins and to live forever. So there are quite a lot of these old stories where women are blamed for absolutely everything. Yes. <laughs> so partly um, this poem in the beginning is sort of shifting the blame back mm. to um, men. Yeah, a bit of equality. <laughs> Let's have some equality. There. Let's have some equality. I mean, even you know, Judeo-Christian mythology, the whole Adam and Eve thing, and that mm. just seems deeply unfair, doesn't it? Really? It really is deeply <laughs> unfair, yeah. Let's have another extract from Bone Monkey, mm -hmm. A Little Rhyme Before Sleep. A Little Rhyme Before Sleep. Roiled by wind and the undertow of tide, the river raises snakes that writhe and glide. Headlights from the bridge and street lamps on both banks silver the ridges on their spines and gild their flanks. Where are they going on this bleak November night? In whose house will they gather when the dark runs out? Up the stairs they slither to the sleeper in his bed, the slack-jawed drowser who has nothing in his head. All I dream is water, leaf green, brown. I open my mouth, I choke, I drown. Uh, and that poem, I think, sort of, bridges beautifully to home farm it's interesting even in that uh, poem uh, from your first collection memory that this idea of snakes and water mm. just kind of it just keeps and it's one of those things that i, I absolutely love and have puzzled over <laughs> it's almost like i don't want to know the answer but it's kind of oh look there's another adder or you know. <laughs> yeah adders grass snakes um and rivers yeah, yeah. Rivers and water. The sort of geography of home farm. Hmm. Did you find there were adders and water and so on around that? Well, the the home farm that I grew up on, yeah. um, we had a couple of water meadows by the uh, River Avon in Wiltshire. Hmm. So, and because our heifers went down there every summer, and we'd walk down there for recreation as well. Yeah. Our lives were sort of bounded by the river. And, you know, every February, the fields would flood down there. We'd go and count the heifers almost every day in the summer in case they swam across yeah. to a bull on the other side in another field or right. or otherwise escaped um, or they were ill or something like that. And we're never very far from water wherever we live, are we? I mean, I live in Lewis, so, yeah. you know, I have the river five minutes walk away yeah. and I walk along it often. So it's sort of an elemental thing. Mm. They're just a natural margin, aren't they? That... Mm. So um, maybe can we hear some poems from Home Farm? Which sure. I've, I've heard people say that they think this is your masterpiece. There'll be more masterpieces in the future, but uh, shall we read the first poem um, at yeah. Karkmir? And that's at from Kirk. a section called Water Meadows. So that yeah. follows on nicely from what we've been talking about. Sure. At Cuckmere. Down in the ditches, reeds eat mud, and on the hills, cows turn to sniff at their calves as if they were strangers. This river's a snake that opens its mouth and sings, looping and undulating, leaving a sloughed skin 
oxbow by its side. But neither ditch nor oxbow will take us back home. The real snake in the old river does that, swimming head up and jaunty across a ford, through muscled water, cold and treacherous, where we paddle, our luminous shins skinny white as the peeled sticks we use as switches. Christ, he says, look at that snake swimming. Heifers stand in the shallows, snorting and shaking off flies before they drink. There you are. There's one of those snakes again in the <laughs> yep. water. Several of them. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, let's, let's go straight into the poem The Eel House, which I absolutely sure. adore. I, by coincidence, I saw an eel house recently, and I thought instantly of this poem. But here we have we have like um, we have water, and we have strange snake like yes, <laughs> snake-like I know like fish. <laughs> Just saying, <laughs> I know they're everywhere. <laughs> okay, this is the eel house. Put your eye to the knot hole in the feather edge board of the small house adjacent to the bridge. Pinhole slits and gaps let in, between the boarding and the brick, a suffocated grey. The floor's a sloping grid for eels to fall on when the weir's in flood. At night, white water grinds over and over through this sieve, and in that loneliness the eels come quietly, one by one, driven by longing for a spawning place at sea. Slither and I across the peep-show floor. The risen dark pools where eels still hide, trapped in a storage well, somersaulting, tumbling, and unbalancing. Their tender fins caress each other, water, air, slip off a little luminosity. Yeah, that's just so great. The, the way the poem goes with these describing these eels and they're all kind of somersaulting and tumbling the fins caress each other and these eels are you know water air and they're giving off light that they're sort of things that don't quite belong in any medium and yet they sort of they belong everywhere Mm -hmm. um and they're trapped and yet they seem to be weirdly free and they're they're thinking of the sea and um it's just such a kind of unusual and and specific and and just gorgeous one of the things i really respond to in your work is the fact that it's actually you know it is grounded in the the natural world i wonder what you think now that we're in this time of ecological crisis and so on mm. when you first started writing it was just you were talking about writing landscape poems or something mm. but now poems about nature you know have become more charged emotionally and some somehow more urgent. What do you think when you write about the natural world? I think that as animals, because we're you know we like to think we're sort of above everything, don't we? We're we're people, we're human, but actually we do have this deep connection with the physical world, and and I think that's often forgotten. Um, mm. And so one of the things that we can do is to remember that deep connection. And I suppose that's part of what I'm trying to do is try to remember it. You know, when in the spring you have, um, or, or I have, a, a sort of physical urge to plant things. I have to plant seeds every spring. I've got, uh, I've got an allotment, but it's like 
it's like a physical imperative, you know, mm. I've got to put seeds in. And I think we need to to listen to that, to remember that the health of the earth is very, very important. I think we all need to have our hands in earth, really, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yes. When front gardens are concreted over for a car, it's criminal. Yeah, I feel exactly the <laughs> in same. In a way. <laughs> you know, I spent my childhood out in the country every day walking and caring for animals and so on. And not everyone has that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I feel very fortunate that I grew up on a farm. In Houghton Farm, the farm, as in other parts of your work, is so woven in with your family history and mm. people you love and so on. Maybe we should just touch on that if you read Peeps and a Nightingale. Peeps and a Nightingale. Peeps wrapped a rag around his little left toe, it being a new saw, and set out walking, coming by chance upon his nightingale, which called me back to mine. I saw the past. To the rear of the farmhouse there were ewes, rifle green and murderous to cattle, and once my father heard a nightingale, so out I went to wait on soft dead ground. It's plain, he said plain brown. Just listen. And under a hundredweight of feathered branches, a nightingale sang out of full darkness, his heart, as all hearts are, disguised, a secretive bird in an impenetrable thicket. Something about the plain brown. It's plain, he said, plain brown. Just listen. Mm. That really <laughs> speaks to me of, you know, of quieter voices in a way that, but the, just the beauty of it. I mean, it's making me think a little bit about Keats and, you know, his Ode to a Nightingale, which is mm. this vast kind of romantic structure. But there's something very romantic about this as well that's kind of just condensed and in the U as well, which is often associated with uh, graveyards and, uh, mm. And there's a poem, uh, Measures of Distance, which I yeah. think uh, it may perhaps is a, something of a companion piece to that. Measures of Distance In January, the water is so clear, a milky light lies on the muzzles of the fish. They wait suspended. All the shadows, the reflections, the deceits have passed. Each breath is shallower than the one before. The last is ragged, hopeful, lost. And then those little aftergasps, tender croons from one who'd always turned his head from a kiss. In 1939, his father wrote, I miss you very much, his whole school having been evacuated. I was just looking at your room this morning and wishing you were home. This room is already empty. The face above the sheets has gone to clay. Now, son, take care of yourself. Earlier, when I ran the electric shaver over your chin, the rasp of stubble was audible above the buzz. We may want you to meet us somewhere. The ping, ping, ping of the monitors, judging those flows in your heart, erratic and inconsistent, impossibly distant, the retching breath impossibly close. You may have to tackle 
your life work soon. The slippery cold eases through mouth and gill, a mildewed down softens their scales to fur, their lazy fins are fluttering, fluttering against the water. That's so beautiful. Oh. What I'm taking to be your your father's kind of threading through that, taking care of him, and that sense of fish in the stream and of you know time passing, and, and there's something almost spiritual about those fish, and they seem to be quite charged in a way. Mm. I just want to ask you, uh, seeing as we've got you on Planet Poetry, about uh, mm. your forthcoming projects the word on the street is there's a new collection bubbling away but uh do you feel superstitious at all speaking about something that hasn't been published yet no no yeah. you know i mean i hope it will be published but you know you, you you can't be absolutely sure can you when it's they've been mad not to that's my my feeling <laughs> anyway it's called um the messenger house and um it's a hybrid collection. So it's made up of um, two sets of journals. So the first set of journals, there are two journals written by my great-great-grandfather, who was called George Davies, um, in 1846 and 1847. And he went to to Serbia with his friend, Mr. Gutch, who was a Queen's messenger. Um, Queen's messengers took uh, dispatches uh, for the foreign office pretty much everywhere. But um, in this case, they, they went to Serbia. They stopped at a place called Aleksnitsa, which is now called Aleksinik. And then the dispatches that they'd brought were sent on to Constantinople, Istanbul, where there were ambassadors who would look at the dispatches and send their answers back. So those two journals span two months each of 1846 and 1847. And my great-great-grandfather went along for the ride, really, I think. And they travelled on trains and steamboats and on post horses and (laughs) all sorts of things. So there's lots of descriptions. They heard Strauss. They heard Strauss. Um, He met a Wallachian princess um, and talked to her. What, What was that, Wallachian? Wallachian. I may be mispronouncing it. It was a country oh. um, in Europe in those days. Um, so that's the first foundation. And I've been transcribing those um, handwritten journals since about 2013. So it's quite a long-term project. Mm. Um, and he tends to do things like write little bits in German. I don't speak German. It's quite difficult. Yeah. His handwriting is sometimes very crabby. And then there are my journals for a trip that I took in 2018 to Serbia and Hungary. So I've included some of those. And then there are poems also, and some odd bits of writing. Mm. <laughs> odd bits of writing. <laughs> odd bits of writing that aren't poems. Okay. <laughs> it's a labour of love. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see how it goes, really. Mm. And so George Davies did do a couple of drawings, and one of them is of this messenger house where they stayed. Well, can you give us a sort of preview, a little glimpse I can. into that new collection? What did you say the collection was called again? It's called The Messenger House. Let's have a message from The Messenger House. Okay, so this is called Quarantine, and it's um, it's from a record uh, written by Captain Spencer, who uh, who met my 
great-great-grandfather. And Captain Spencer was quarantined because he inadvertently strayed um, out of Serbia um, across a border and was quarantined on his way back in. They were worried about the plague in those days. Plus um, a change. <laughs> yes, exactly. But this uh, this quarantine sounds much much better in a way than staying in a hotel, I think. Quarantine. I was quartered with a wild and motley crew. Turks and Arnots, Greeks and Zinzars, Jews, Armenians and Gypsies, all habited in the costume of their tribe and speaking tongues as might have rivaled Babel. Our four-footed companions were doomed to quarantine with us and made their own concert, braying, lowing and barking, of all the wayfarers' annoyances, quarantines most prejudicial to health. The quarantine establishment is large, strong palisades and a guard of pandors, sheds for merchandise, stables, a han, and huts for wealthier travellers, but most were kirigi, swineherds and drovers, who preferred the night air to the expenses of a han, and who bivouacked in a large space in the centre around a blazing fire. I saw three to four hundred persons drink gallon after gallon of wine and raki, but here was no quarrelling nor fighting. They sang, smoked, danced and cooked, performed on the bagpipe, reed and goozler, and hearkened to storytellers and bards who asked but just a few pari from their listeners. Our clothes, bedding and papers were fumigated, although there's been no case of plague for several years. Every little item swells the traveller's bill of costs. The guard of honour demands their own bakshish. That's great. And that, that's a with the, the mention of the fire in there, that brings us kind of full circle in a way. Yes, back to hearth. Yes. Yes. Well, Janet, I, I think um, I'd just like to thank you once again well, thank for you. being our guest <laughs> on Planet Poetry, and it's been an absolute delight to have you. Well, thank you very much for having me, and it's been lovely talking to you. You really pulled out some brilliant stuff there from Janet. You got her talking about some of the, the themes she writes about, and I loved her readings. I like the way you took a little trip through her collections. I've, I've got three of them, and I, I love Janet's work. I, I mean, I must admit, uh, well, I think we both do, don't we? So we're a bit biased yeah. there. But and the fact that she read Nearer, that lovely poem from Hangman's Acre, has yeah. always been one of my favourites. Such a beautiful love poem. It's that, beautiful. It? She does. She really specialises in these love poems, and even the, the and she talks about how landscape and memory are her themes. Mm. I think really it's all about love, isn't it? There's there's a such a, a tenderness. Um, yeah. I don't mean that in a sentimental way, but she's got a real way of expressing a connection with the world, with the natural world. I think you're dead right. Actually, it, it is all about love, and but it's that kind of restrained love. Wasn't it fascinating to hear about how? During her hiatus from writing, she took up woodwork. Yeah. Oh, wow, you know, working with your hands. It's a lovely 
compliment and and also being a gardener you know it's that and she said didn't she about but you know everyone should get their hands in the earth yeah there's that um physical connection i like learning about what poets do when they're not being poet i i agree it's nice to know what what they're up to other than poetry and even just some of the little insights into into method i liked it when she talked about doing a lot of research but she was mm. quick to say it's not just traditional research it's going out for a walk and just looking at things that yeah. yeah actually that's that is it isn't it you're out for a walk and you're you're observing not not in that kind of workshoppy way you know like write down 10 things that you saw on your way to to the shops this morning but but just generally being open I think being open to what's going on and letting it come in I thought it was interesting bone monkey I've, yeah. I did find the most challenging of her collections but when she started talking about this uh you know what bone monkey represented and she went a bit into the character didn't she of a bit like ted hughes crow uh, yeah uh, in the sense of this mischievous otherworldly creature that's being personified and even all the the mentions of snakes um you know snakes in, are in, everywhere <laughs> they're everywhere and, and and actually they are in crow as well you know he he regurgitates the creation adam and eve the garden of eden stuff quite a few times in there one thing i hadn't picked up on reading that book and i do i love that book that was the first book i came to bone monkey ah. charlotte gann was the person who said read this and um because <laughs> i love the sort of gothic kind of elements and you know having a kind of sinister bone monkey kind of doubled ticked many of my boxes but one of the things I never realised was she was talking about how the idea began to germinate out of, you know, sort of having a monkey on your shoulder because of the responsibility of looking after an elder relative and that, that sense of kind of depression and obligation. Okay. And and that suddenly kind of unlocked a, you know, vein of meaning in that bone monkey thing for me. So, um, uh, you yes. know, it was great. And her new book sounds very interesting too, that kind of mashup of... To, yes, uh, the uh, the hybrid history and poetry and other people's journals and I mean, in fact, Home Farm is is quite a hybrid as well yeah. in the sense that it contains a lot of artifacts, doesn't it? Um, bills, statements, letters, and in fact, the poem she read where it's her father and her grandfather, and she quotes in the poem lines from this letter written from the grandfather to the father, and the actual a facsimile of that letter is next to it in the book isn't it so i think the book is full of those kinds of moments when you know even just something as simple as a bill of what things cost or shopping it, list or shopping something. a shopping list and at one point there's there's that lovely talk about the different cows and they all had names and how they were all which fields they were at the names of the fields and, and yes. i don't know all of that detail was i found very immersive and very um very moving you know going back to what you were saying about love she's able to give voice to her father and grandfather and mother and this new book is like more distant relatives and things and there's a way that she's kind of channeling all those people as well i don't know i, I think and she should be a national treasure but she's certainly very treasured on my uh bookshelf we're both big fans aren't books. we tony fraser at shearsman who publishes yes. her i did see him in a talk once at a poetry festival and someone said is there a poet who you really feel delighted to have discovered? And he said, yes, Janet Sutherland. So there you go. Wow, yeah, quite right.
So now we're in 2022, Robin. What sort of thing have you kicked off the year reading? We we talk mostly on Planet Poetry about contemporary poetry, and there is this huge kind of uh, iceberg beneath the the surface, isn't there, holding up contemporary poetry, and that is the canon and yeah. all that seems to have gone before. So I've just been dipping, starting to sort of dip more regularly into poetry by dead poets. Tennyson and Keats sort of have floated to the surface. Um, bobbing so around in the earth by the iceberg. They're bobbing around <laughs> there. But actually, I'm going to read a, a short poem by a, a poet who's only recently died, and that's Ivan Boland. She was an Irish poet who took a very different position from the tradition of Irish poetry. She kind of swam against the tide, rather. A feminist perspective. She was kind of fighting against the traditional role of women in Irish poetry, if you like, how women were, both how they were portrayed or have been portrayed in Irish poetry right up to the 20th century, and also women poets, how they were or were not able to find their way as poets. She wrote a huge number of essays and gave lectures and uh, stuck her head above the parapet in many ways. And she wrote some fabulous poetry. So in the spirit of recent news stories about war memorials and statues and the tearing down of statues and the kind of um, the feeling that we should be you know, interrogating the, the people that they commemorate and the, the things that they commemorate. I'm going to read this short poem called Heroic, and it's from Ivan Boland's collection, The Lost Land, from 1998. Great. Heroic. Sex and history, and skin and bone, and the oppression of Sunday afternoon bells called the faithful to devotion. I was still at school and on my own and walked and walked and sheltered from the rain. The patriot was made of drenched stone. His lips were still speaking. The gun he held had just killed someone. I looked up and looked at him again. He stared past me without recognition. I moved my lips and wondered how the rain would taste if my tongue were made of stone and wished it was and whispered so that no one could hear it but him. Make me a heroine. Wow, that's great. I love that. I didn't know that poem at all. You flick through a Boland collection and... um, a lot of things jump out. She often describes, she looks back as a mature poet, she looks back at her childhood and often pulls details out, scenes, and this kind of interesting, she's looking back at herself as a child, the child's looking at this statue, and in some ways the the statue, the man, is more alive. You know, she talks about yeah. his lips are still moving, and she's ditched all the kind of, the church and the school and all the things that circumscribe her own life as a child and and as a female child 
and there's this kind of ambivalent, you know, make me a heroine. Yeah. It's just so layered and, and interesting. So the fact that the the statue was like a, made of a, some completely different medium, you know, uh, towards the end of the poem, she's wanting to be, to share that medium, you know, to, it's like that sort of masculine power and those authority figures are, are not even of this world somehow, or, or a world that she can relate to. And she's trying to make this imaginative leap into being more statue-like herself and being made great. I don't, I don't know, it's just so yeah. great. I really like it. And this idea of she whispers to the statue, but the statue looks past her, doesn't recognise her and isn't listening. And it's a, a, a powerful image, I think. It's sort of making her a ghost, isn't it, really? Because that's the permanent solid thing and she's this kind of thing just wandering past, whispering unnoticed and carrying on. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> and yet she's come from the world of sex and history and she's kind of ditched that which is her reality and and is actually more real than the statue but here's the statue living on you know with the gun that's just killed someone frozen in that moment of violence i really don't know her work at all definitely worth seeking out yeah that's persuaded me to go and buy one of her books right now (laughs) (laughs) and what about you peter i think you've been uh reading something a bit more absolutely up to the minute yeah well you and i used to frequently go to see the t.s Eliot uh readings we didn't did. we, in january yeah, we did. that was a kind of a thing that was part of the poetry calendar isn't it? <sighs> hey, they were in fact one year it was described as the poet's annual general meeting wasn't it really <laughs> <laughs> but I, because of not going I, I the last couple of years i've kind of slightly lost touch with the uh, shortlisted poets, even though I've you know, seen them come through on emails and so on. So I made it my mission to read the winning collection this year by Joel Taylor. It's called uh, Canto and Othered Poems. Now, the, the actual way it's printed on the cover is C with a plus and N-T-O. You wouldn't get it into Waterstones, other words, probably. Yeah, yeah I guess so. And, and there's a kind of explanation inside that it's uh, canto is an inflection of cantare, third person, singular, past historic. Sounds like it's got an Italian origin to me, but cantare, transitive, obsolete, literary, to narrate, tell, or recount in a story. I looked at uh, YouTube videos of Joelle Taylor, which are absolutely stunning of her reading her work, um, but she definitely says canto in it. So, right, um, right. I'm going with that. So anyway, I wasn't really sure what to expect from this book. It's published by the Westbourne Press, by the way. But it's a celebration of butch lesbian culture, and which seems to be looking back to the late 80s and 90s. And it's really bracing, full of rebellious spirit, anger, and it's a kind of also an elegiac celebration of you know lost time. She has a preface in, in the book where Joelle Taylor says that the internet celebrates difference, the club celebrates unity. In these distinct spaces, we learn to protect one another. We learn that we are one another. But her book seems to be so much about that club where this uh, lesbian community were able to be together in a kind of safe, although threatened space. Are we talking about like a nightclub? Okay. Yeah, like a pub club type yeah. thing. And at the heart of the book is is built around this pub, which is called the Maryville, 
where her friends go and there's a kind of mythic recreation of all those kind of endless wonderful nights out you know and the enormous characters that populated it and there's other elements about global homophobia and people killed around the world for being lesbians and gay she says it's against this backdrop of rising global homophobia transphobia and misogyny that this book is written i wanted to both acknowledge the crimes against the lgbt community and reflect back to a time when we had a, a greater sense of unity of, of self so there's a few sections to this book the first bit's called vitrine and there's a sort of almost like um, behind glass cases in a museum except it's along the street little fragments of this former life and then there's this section canto which is just a magnificent kind of a self-affirmation poem and it's broken into rounds like a boxing match and it's a sort of glorious affirmation of her identity i say to you go and look it up on youtube because she gives an absolutely magnificent and fiery reading of it on that the opening image of that section is a bit like being parachuted out of heaven into a life and she says you fall miss your body entirely land somewhere in enemy territory behind the lines your body a foreign country you cannot get a visa for your skin a parachute caught in tree branches you awaken in no man's land gunfire from over the horizon and women are crucified on hashtags across the dark hills so that's just the opening but the, it it becomes such a fiery affirmation of her own identity and overcoming the obstacles and difficulties that she's faced it's just really inspiring as i mentioned before the heart of the book is called o maryville uh, it's a bar where the principal characters dudizile valentine Jack, Catch, and Angel, three elder butchers and a young boy, spelt B-O-I. She helpfully includes uh, notes on slang in her introduction, and a B-O-I, boy, a masculine presenting lesbian, often younger. Anyway, these characters are based on real women, and these stories are woven into a kind of voice play, which the action of which is based in a bar and ends in a fight with hostile men to, trying to get inside the bar. What I love most is the way she just brings all these characters to life. Romanticised probably, but just so vividly drawn people. For me, anyway, that is the chief delight of this book. I'm going to just end with reading a, a description of one of her uh, characters, which is this poem called Angel. When Angel looks in the mirror... It looks away first. Star fist, open jaw, how the shine becomes you. Clean friend, taller than yesterday. Spine, an unravelling plot. You odd insistence, my king of the blue tattoo. Eyebrow pinned like a butterfly. When you walked in the room, it became you. How you brought the silence in with you. How you brought the night to its knees, back there where the quiet ones go. And now the night won't stop texting. How many times have we walked home, you and I, only to find home walking softly behind us? I have seen you leap over language to push a man back inside himself, 
throw pint glasses like seeds, speak to every woman as though she were your mother. I have seen your fists sob. At the centre of every boy is a bare room, and inside a swinging light bulb, a wire-thin girl dances, stays with you even when you look away. Angels don't fall from heaven, they leave us at closing time, unscrew their fucks in the backs of black cabs, abandon their bodies, beneath a girl, beneath a duvet, beneath the wet, dilated night, on fire. Powerful. Yeah, it's sort of big and dramatic. You know, the the fact that she writes plays as well, I think, really. She mentions or thanks in her notes Inua Elums as well. Um, and there's that kind of same crossover of uh, drama and poetry. Ah, uh, yes. When you talk to Inua. Yes, I, I see thing. what you mean, yeah. So really stirring. And in a way, it's an example of why I love these times, because a book like this is winning this great prize. And it's a world that, you know, as a cisgendered older man that I would have never had an insight into. Her persona when she's performing is quite sort of tough, but she's a real bridge builder, I think. I looked at the shortlist for the T.S. Edits and I, there, of course, there's names there that I knew, but some I didn't for sure. And, um, and it's interesting the way that the book award culture is developing, possibly independently of magazines, poetry magazines, which is which is interesting. Well, I think that what we're saying is that you could be reading, you know, loads of magazines and just constantly reading poetry, and yet there's always going to be stuff to discover. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. things that we haven't stumbled across, and uh, which is you which know, is good. It took me a while, <laughs> but I'm I'm really pleased I stumbled across Joelle Taylor and stumbled across her as the T.S. Eliot Prize winner. <laughs> but, <laughs> 